Scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hitting from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving a soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me for a moment? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you and to be useful to you and your congregation today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. C.S. Lewis apparently has been credited to call Psalm 19 the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics of the world. Well, one, first of all, who am I to argue with C.S. Lewis about anything literary? And two, I don't know how you judge that scale, but I think it's a pretty impressive uh, claim about this. Because I'll be honest, I love poetry, but I'm not that person who's drawn to poetry. I'm not that person who you just uh, would see growing up with his, 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 his copy of some poems and sitting in the coffee shop nonstop. For me to work through poetry, I have to spend extra time. I have to read and then reread and then reread. I don't just hear it once and just ca- and, and captivated by the beauty. But when I work through a poem, when I work through the art, oh, I find great life in it. Because there's some ideas and some thoughts that just can't be captured by mere prose, by mere statements or doctrinal or bullet points, right? There are some places that God can speak that we can only allude to through the veiled uh, formation of poetry and art. And so as we look at Psalm 19, as we look at its message, its glory, it's the surprise of how it takes us from creation and also to the Torah, to the law. It takes us from the pinnacle of how God speaks to us in multifaceted ways. But the message is clear. God speaks. God speaks to us. God speaks to us in a way that we can hear and we can understand. We are living in an era and an age, some friends and I were talking about, as you know, as people in their middle of life or want to do, 
sit around and just grouse about the world and fix everything, right? That's what I was doing. And we said, where would we be if we just didn't have social media? Because we wanted to blame everything we could on it. But one thing I think is true, the way that we are trying to grapple with the internet and with social media, with the influx of ubiquitous everything, is we have so much everything that we find ourselves not trusting anything, don't we? We find ourselves with so much opportunity and so many sources that we don't know how to parse what is or is not true. It used to be, it's been said that we used to live in a world where we all had the same facts and then we could come up with our own opinions, but now we can all have our own facts. And so this psalm, I think, is a wonderful antidote, wonderful cry from the heavens saying, he is there and he is not silent. Let us take joy in that. So I've already told you the end of the sermon, and now we're going to unpack it. And we're going to unpack it, and then I'll tell you the end again later. He is here, and he is not silent. God has many ways to speak to us, and he can be heard, and he can be seen, and he can be understood. The psalm that we're looking at today has uh, not just two parts, but three. Uh, verses 1 through 6 focus on creation. Uh, on verses 7 through 10, it focuses on the Torah or the law. And then the psalmist's response in verses 11 through 14. The key thing that we want to hear in this psalm is the rich way in which creation and the law, the way that nature and God's word complement each other, intertwine themselves together, being a fuller witness of God than either can do alone. Now, when we start coming up with a discussion about um, God's being seen in creation, or God being heard through the giving of the law, you, you, you just spark every pastor's desire to give you a little um, glimpse into his seminary training. And um, I'd like to think I'm above that. But I'm not, so I'm going to give you a little glimpse into my seminary training. Uh, natural theology versus general revelation or specific revelation. Has anybody ever heard those categories before? You can raise your hand if you want. Does anybody ever read books on those categories of general revelation, specific revelation? All right, if they had, if the people had raised their hands, I saw a few of these. I'll just let you know, if they had raised, if they have done this, then you can know who your nerds are, I mean your, your scholars are. Because it is absolutely breathtaking to learn how God can communicate to us and how he's chosen throughout all the ages to speak into our lives. And then we give it to theologians to write about it. And it's a testimony to perseverance that you might wade through the detailed analysis of general versus specific revelation. All right. It can get a little lofty. So, for example, uh, Westminster Confession, we're a Presbyterian church. We are aligned. Our, our standard that we hold to is the Westminster Confession of Faith. And chapter 1, paragraph 1, begins thus. Our natural understanding and the works of creation provide so clearly show God's goodness, wisdom, power, that human beings have no excuse for not believing in him. However, these means alone cannot provide the knowledge of God and of his will, which is necessary for salvation. So again, when writers start like that, they just, uh, there was no like, uh, Bob and Sue entered my office. 
It's just jumping right in. Our natural understanding and the works of creation and providence so clearly show the goodness of God, his wisdom, and his power. I think that's something that we can all agree with. It's something true. Well, the Apostle Paul said it this way in the beginning of Romans. He said, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. Ever since the creation of the world, God's eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been seen and understood through the things that God has made. That's why in almost any and every culture you get, you see that somehow when mankind gathers together, we form religions. We do. We see something greater than ourselves. We seek meaning in it. We seek explanation in it. We seek power from it because we recognize in our lives we are small and fixed and finite. And boy, if there's a power out there that can inspire, can control, can intercede, or do great acts, we want their favor. Isn't that common to humanity? Even those that now opt out of formal religion. That's why there's a rise in astrology. That's why there's a rise in seeing nature as source of extra power that's beyond the scope of science. And that's why we've turned even our civic life into a form of religion now. We may be over the institutionalized historic ancient religions, but we are not over the idea of turning to a power that's greater than ourselves that we can tap into or maybe harness. Or maybe it's just merely the religion of the local sports team. I don't know. But either way, we find some sense of identity and meaning and belonging and inspiration in the world around us because we are fixed, but we see that it is so great. Have you been to the Grand Canyon? I challenge anybody to go to the Grand Canyon and just be like, hmm, it's a ditch. <laughs> Have you been to the ocean? Eh, it's water. Have you been out in the ocean where you lost sight of land? Oh, some of you like that. I'm glad for you. I've never been on a cruise. Seems like a weird Petri dish to put yourself out on. Not going to do it. Have you ever been to the great open fields of the Great Plains? Yeah, one of my favorite poets, who I love, 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 is a guy named um, Rilke. And he has this poem about the storms coming across. And where he was writing from is that great plateau, those great plains, the ones that stretch from Mongolia all the way across Poland. And he was writing from those areas. And he was writing about the great storms coming over, the storms that you can just see coming for miles and miles and miles. And they come and they beat, and that's so good. Because in that greatness of the expanses that we can put ourselves in front of, whether it's the big ditch out in Arizona or the big ocean, the big pond, or whether it's just the expanse of land that fixes us as finite and small, we see the greatness of power in front of us. We see the weight of eternity. The teacher in Ecclesiastes writes to us that while there's a time for everything, there's a time for every season in life, that God puts the weight of eternity on our hearts. He puts a sense of the eternal in our minds. So it's a key thing that we hear how God speaks to us through creation. For what can be known about God is plain. It's evident 
ever since the creation of the world, God's eternal power and divine nature, though invisible, have been understood and seen. I know that Paul knew Psalm 19. I know that Paul understood how Psalm 19 speaks about how creation itself proclaims God's goodness without words and without voice. But it is not enough to bring us to full sense of salvation. And therefore, we need special revelation or specific revelation. Westminster Confession carries on and says, Therefore, it pleased the Lord at different times and in various ways to reveal himself and to declare that this revelation contains his will for his church. Afterwards, it pleased God to put this entire revelation into writing so that the truth might be better preserved and transmitted to the church. That's a little uh, more encouraging than the the first part of Westminster Confession 1. But it does teach us that God does speak in different times, in different ways. My favorite theologian is a guy named Herman Bobbink, and one of the things he talks about is how God speaks through these moments. He comes and invades the creation. He speaks through how he created it and how it naturally works, but there are moments where he interrupts it and creates a space in it where he now speaks through the fissures. Remember when Jesus was baptized, we looked at that a couple weeks ago, and the heavens tore open and the voice of God came through. There are moments where God interrupts where he does something unique to get our attention. And then somebody recorded, took the, took the liberty to record what God wanted to be recorded so that it can be better transmitted throughout the ages. Aren't we glad for that? Hebrews, the book of Hebrews begins with this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. So I want to get us to wrap our minds around the idea that God's specific and special revelation comes in all sorts of forms and sizes and means and methods. Whether it be a burning bush up on a hillside, or whether it be a pillar of of, a fire and cloud, or whether it be the still small voice or whisper through the wind, God can meet. Sometimes we want to think that that we are limited to holding up that this is the word of God. And friends, is this the word of God? Yes. Yes. But Bob Inc. would tell us that this is the servant form of revelation. Because this was the recording of what God did when he invaded and interrupted and got everybody's attentions in various times, in various ways, through various people and various means. And then somebody was good enough to write it down for us so that it can be more easily transmitted and preserved. So let us make sure that we understand that the pinnacle and and source and highest form of God's special revelation is the word of God himself, and that is Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus. I remember hearing somebody kind of jokingly say that they believed in the absolute inerrancy of the word of God. And then they said, and when he turned 18, he grew a beard. Because we do not worship a book, but that book is the servant that points us to the one whom we worship. That book points us to the message of a God who knows us, who sees us, who's walked among us, who feels pain, 
and sufferings of human existence who can relate and be our intercessor. So let's take a look at this psalm again. And again, uh, for me, when I read poetry, uh, I, I thank you, Eric, for reading it. And I'm, so I'm not trying to do you a disservice, Eric, by rereading it again. But let's read the poetry again. And if you want to, you pull it up on your app. I happen to use the NIV because that's what I grew up with and it reads a little smoother for me. Uh, but if you want to follow along or you just want to close your eyes and listen, I don't think you've fallen asleep. And if you need a nap, that's fine too. But let's read this, this, this poem, this hymn again. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the earth. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of its chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, the honey from the honeycomb. And by them, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock, my redeemer. Verses 1 through 6 paint a picture of a world that celebrates day after day the wondrous creative work of God. And do you notice something that is not mentioned that is absent in verses 1 through 6? No humans are mentioned. No voice from our world is highlighted. It's a humbling reminder that our place is sometimes seen small within the whole of created order. Verses 1 through 4a are a celebration of creation's delight in God's provisions. No words are necessary, but creation in, deafeningly, in deafening silence shouts its delight in God's creative provisions. In 4b through 6, the echo, they echo the common ancient Near East picture of the earth. The idea that the sun gets up on one side and makes its circuit and comes over to the other side. He comes out of his tent like a champion, ready to run his race. I just want to see the sun kind of like flexing a little. Oh, it's a new day. It's a new day. I'm going to, do it. I'm going to go from here and I'm going to go to there. Yes. But notice something else. Even in this ancient world, this ancient custom, the sun was not the god. The sun is the creation of the creator. Many other neighboring 
um, communities as they formulate their understanding of the divine and the universe and who does what see the sun and it's clearly important, it's necessary, and it's clearly powerful and overwhelming and it clearly cannot be harnessed or controlled by ourselves. So it's very normal for ancient communities to make a god out of the sun, but not so the psalmist. He knows that the sun is just as much creation as the mountains. Then we get to part two. Verses seven through 10 extol the virtues of the Torah. Using synonyms for the Torah that echo Psalm 19, 119's extended praise of the Torah. Speaking about his decrees, his precepts, his commandments, his ordinances. He speaks about how they are good and how they provide life. The Lord, the law is perfect. It refreshes the soul. The statutes are trustworthy. They help make simple wise. The precepts are right. And it gives joy to the heart. The commands are radiant, giving light to the eyes so we can see. Fear of the Lord is pure. It gives us perseverance because it endures forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm because they're all right. There's no unjust law among them. And they are precious, more precious than gold, more precious than honey, more precious than anything that we can value. Now, some of you may say, I remember trying to read through the Bible in a year, and I remember hitting Leviticus. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I bet there's a few people who've probably had read the Bible through a year kind of stall somewhere in late Exodus, early Leviticus, middle Leviticus, stall in the genealogies of numbers. Maybe you made it through all that, you got into the history books, and then you hit Chronicles again. Oh, thanks. More lists of people. And they were important, they are important for some things and for someone, but yes, for your devotional reading, eh, a little dry. But if we can get to the point where we understand how we see who God is by understanding his ways. How we see who God is by turning to his word and hearing the stories of old and hearing how God was present and how he provides. How we can see that his laws bring life and bring joy and are pure. Then we grow into this love and appreciation for the Torah in the same way that we can appreciate the Grand Canyon. It doesn't happen automatically. It's not a switch that we can turn on. They don't come out of story keepers coming out. You know what? Dad, Mom, I, the Torah is awesome. Can we scrap all movies? And I don't really want to look at YouTube anymore unless it's Leviticus. <laughs> Not going to happen. But I don't think that's what God's calling us to do. But when we see God through his law, we understand that the, when we used to be simple and now we've been given wisdom. And we can understand that there's a response to this, that there's a conclusion. The account of the psalmist in verse 11 through 13, uh, they recount the psalmist's self-admission to pay attention to the silent voices, to pay attention to the creation that does not speak but speaks volumes, to cling to the teachings of the Torah, God's creative and redeeming work, and to ask God's help to keep us from sin that destroys, to keep us from sin that takes us far, to keep us from sin that separates us, or it makes us feel like we're separated from a God who loves us. 
Hearing the voice of God in creation and hearing the voice of God's law gives us life together. We can join the voices of the, psalm, of the psalmist in the final section. We can appreciate the law's warning and its intention of keeping us from falling into deep and grievous transgressions. Praying that our last words, our voice, will be acceptable to God. See there in verse 12, he even recognizes that although he's in love with God from nature and he's in love with God from his word, he still has hidden faults and he asks God to forgive. He confesses. It reminds me of the Lord's Prayer where we pray, forgive our trespasses. And then he goes in verse 13 to the, the concept of deliverance and protection. Keep your servant from willful sins. Now, there's different translations. Some might have it as proud thoughts, and some might even have it as the insolent. So think about it this way. If you're being kept from willful sins or proud thoughts, you're kept being kept from the internal battle that you have, the internal destruction that our sinful nature, our broken nature can bring to us. That's why we need to recognize God in creation. That's why we need the law to change our hearts and our minds and to give us an anchor and a direction. Because internally, we can go off course, we can go askew, and we can fall into grievous sins. But what if it's the best translation or another translation is the insolent? Are there outside voices that can misdirect us? Are there outside voices that claim to be pure and good and noble and even representing God that will lead us into grievous sins, into harm, into pits? Of course there are. So the antidote is to cling to the voice of God where we see and hear and can be guided and to be found wisdom. It reminds me again of the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom. Thine is the power and the glory forever. Hearing God's voice in this world through creation, through special revelation, hearing God's voice in this world through the power and the majesty and the stillness of creation. Hearing God's voice in this world through the hearing God's ways through the scriptures. Through the incarnation of God himself. The fact that he dwelt among us. Through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that seals us till the day that he returns. That guides us in the life that he has given us. That enlightens us so that we might see and hear him and understand his ways and the mind of Christ. We hear God's voice still present with us today through all these facets and through his church. And it's not just through the guy standing up here at the pulpit or the woman standing here at the pulpit. You don't just get your voice from God from a sermon. At risk of making you feel awkward, I'd say, look to your left and right. Turn around and see that person sitting behind you and recognize that you will hear God's voice from them from one another. You will hear God's voice from those little ones that go out and start running down the hallways. I love it that Simon decided to say, for every, you know, every week I tell him, God loves you and we love you. That's the one thing I want you to know. God loves you and we love you. And he goes, 366 days a year, I know that statement. Thank you for including leap year. Love that kid. Friends, if you've not been aware of the moments that you have been used in the lives of others to proclaim God's goodness and ways, may you have God open your eyes to see it, because I know he has. And when you have a moment where you recognize that somebody's life was moved or changed or encouraged in a way that you had no idea, it's just it was a 
what sometimes we like to call a God thing. It's humbling, isn't it? Because you recognize, oh, what an honor to be in that moment. But please do not give me any credit because I recognize I did not control that. I did not intend that. I did not have the measure for that. And it's a God thing. And so when we are united together where God is moving through his spirit and truth in us, through us, with each other, it is life-giving. And that is my hope this Lenten season, that it's not all just dirge and downer as we prepare for the atonement, which is important to go through a time of purifying and confession, but that it will be life-giving, that we recognize the more we see God alive and awake, that he is here and he is not silent. By the way, is God the one that's changing now? Oh, well, God's woken up here lately. Clearly, no. I remember seeing one of those marquee signs if you feel far from God, ask yourself who's, who moved. It's easy for us to get lost. But he's there in the heavens, in the skies, in the trees. Not physically, he's not a tree God, but he's there speaking through the creation that he made and he directs and controls. But he's also there in this group of people he's gathered together in the name of Jesus. He's there when we read the scriptures. He's there when we pray the, pray the prayers. He's there when we sing the songs. He's there when we make the meals and have a potluck and when we bring the, 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 the tenth tray of baked ziti to the mom who just had a baby. And yes, a lot of baked ziti gets brought. As we journey through this Lenten season, may it be filled with introspection May it be filled with anticipation of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And may we take time to stop, if only for a moment, if only briefly, and listen to the silent voice of creation, and then reflect on the law of God, the blueprint for living in community with one another. Friends, may that be the hallmark of this Lenten season. So may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, in your sight, my Lord, my rock, and my redeemer. Lord, be with us this week as we walk the life you've given us. Open our eyes to see where you are. Open our eyes to see how you want to meet with us and use us to meet with others. Open our ears to hear your voice in the unlikely as well as the likely places. Open our hearts to love with the fullness of your love. Open our minds to know and understand and be in awe of how great you are. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.